Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. How's everybody doing? Can you play with your is, kids have is for breakfast? Is this the show? Is this the show? Is it? Take the clothes Are off we? the chair. This is like one of my favorite parts of the all show. <laughs> is there's always like I feel like I'm at home this conversation way, about yeah. whether or not it's the show. Well, I mean, I'm not going to take my clothes off, but I'll take well, them off the chair. <laughs> wait, you're going to take your clothes off? Well, no, wait, he told me to take my clothes in, and then he said, Not that off the kind chair. of showing. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. It's really devolved in less than <laughs> yeah, two minutes. What in the world? Uh, everybody, give a round of applause for the Elixir Outlaws. So during Osa's talk just a minute ago, I thought what this community really needs is a good acronym for our stack. So like LAMP mm. got really popular. So I think mm. we should be KELP. Kafka, Kubernetes, Lumen, and Postgres. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Where's the, wait, where's the, wait, where's the e? e? Well, you, we're programmers. You can throw all those things away. Haven't <laughs> you ever worked in a database like years ago? Everything was all capital and there were no vowels. But like you just... <laughs> How many years ago? I'm a man of a certain age. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so the kelp stack. Kelp I got stack. it. Yeah. Um, There's nothing else important. That's that all. probably means that at some point there'll be a hostile fork of that stack and it'll be like the algae <laughs> stack. Perfect. Be, no, it's got to start with an R. It's got, Rax has got to be involved. <laughs> uh, no, come back to me. I'm going to workshop this. I'll come up with, I'll figure something <laughs> we'll out. Work on it. We'll yeah. work on it. Yeah. This is how it goes. We just sit yeah. quietly. The problem is, is they normally something. edit out all of these moments where we look at each other and like, what are we going to talk about? I have no idea. Yeah. What your kids have for breakfast this morning? Mm, that's important. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask what your kids <laughs> have That's an important topic. Time. So in case, so I don't know how many people actually listen to the show. It, you don't, it, it can be, not that many of you, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, you, you can just hum. Don't raise your hands. Oh, uh, yeah. If, if you've never listened to the show, just hum. Oh, that's mm. most people. That's most people. <laughs> that was really, that was a really I mean, loud. You guys home. are all was, wise people. Let that me was tell you, that so, was unwise. Yeah. You guys are, you're, yeah, well, they're probably smarter for, for I, it though. For that was them, a real blow to the old wise. ego. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, we have this. We have this. So, uh, as you can probably tell, our show is not super. Um, I would say structured. <laughs> Um, we mostly just talk to each other, mostly because we're all friends. At one point, we did get some feedback that they're like, "Can't you make, can't you just like keep this like a tight twenty? One of those like, you know, uh, like NPR almost kind of, uh, you know, like a serial type show." And I was like, "Yeah, but I don't want to exploit people," and uh, so I didn't want to do a serial show. Anyway, uh, so we kind of shuck and jive, and uh, we is very loose. But one of the things that we talk about a lot, which we know our listeners are super into, because we got feedback about it on many podcast review sites is that we talk about uh, what our kids had for breakfast. Yeah, actually they said the final word in the review was amazing. Yeah, awesome. So I think the review was something give the people like, what they now want. I know some guy, random dude's kid had a turkey sandwich for breakfast, which first of all, who has a turkey sandwich for breakfast? Monsters. An animal. <laughs> well, most children are monsters. Yes, yeah, true. I'm sorry. Anyway, so what did, do you know what your kids have? I have no idea what my kids have. <laughs> no, me either. They don't talk to me. They don't like me. Wait, that's not true. They don't. They're, oh, they don't. Well, the, the ones that are still at home are teenagers. So. Oh, yeah. Well, that's fair. <laughs> Wait, you so don't know what you, your kids had for breakfast? Uh, yeah, eggs. Oh, yeah. yeah. So for it's that listener. Important. Not a turkey yeah, sandwich. So. Curious. No. so. <laughs> Is there a thought? No. It, so? uh, I was going to dovetail this into things that were about Elixir and also oh, yeah. the conference. So I want to talk to you about your uh, talk you gave. Oh, yeah. Yesterday. 
and how it was just sort of a slightly worse version of Stuart's talk. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I was, <laughs> was listening to Stuart's we talk this morning and I that. thought, that's what I said. But he does it so much better. Well, and he's got better hair, like everything about that's it was 100% better. That's 100% true. Yeah. Because um, uh, it's not red. No, but I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, and we talked about this uh, after, and I've been thinking about how much we as programmers immediately can start to jump into, uh, I think, like very tactical thinking. And I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of how do we grow and mentor new developers? Like, how do we teach these kinds of skills? How do we teach the skills of like stepping back and really like analyzing the problem and looking at all the details and working out how to come up with multiple solutions to the problem? Like, because I know for me, uh, I've tried to cultivate these skills a lot. And uh, just being totally honest, like, I'm not good at that. Like, I'm not great at being able to sit back and do that. I slip into tactical thinking pretty quickly, and I have to kind of catch myself and pull myself back out of that. Um, and so I've been thinking about that a lot. And I wanted to pose to y'all, first of all, what you think about that mm-hmm. as an idea. And if you've yeah. had thoughts about that, if you've like struggled with that, or if you, it's something you notice about yourself. And then two, what are techniques you can use to engage in that kind of thinking? Like you talked a lot about this in your talk about, you know, getting up and taking a bath or whatever, going for a walk, getting, you know, disengaging. But are there other things like that? You gave the talk. Yeah, <laughs> I get, that's true. Maybe I should talk about it. So, yeah, so one of the things that I, I said in my talk was uh, timers. And so I'm, I'm the same way as you, and I get focused on something, and I, I can sit there for eight hours, 12 hours, till my wife tells me that it's the next day and I need to take my kids to school and, and not even realize it. Especially I used to work in a room with no windows, and you really have no idea. Like, you go to work in the, in the wintertime, and it's dark. Yeah. You come out, and it's dark. Yeah. And There's you're no like, clocks. Is, is it dinner time or is it is it tomorrow? I'm not yeah. sure. Every so, eight hours, they fill your cubicle with a nutrient-rich sludge and you just have to <laughs> eat your way back. Just get back to the keyboard and keep going. It's that world. Yeah. Soiling green. Uh, oh, my God. So uh, I, I set a lot of timers, like regularly set timers and alarms. And at one point, um, one of my first nervous projects actually was I, I hooked up a timer that knew like what time I should leave and there was a light in my office and it would turn off all the main lights at quarter till and there was like a lamp that was sitting there and by 6 p.m. it would be completely off and I'd just be sitting in the dark. Mm. Unfortunately, that didn't really work. I still just continued to just sit there, there and work. <laughs> I think Chris was asking about tactics that, you know, help. That work, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Alarms. Alarms so work really well for me. Bad things, that make, things, things that make noise. So, okay. so I'll, I'll set timers and alarms on my phone, um, and, and if it makes noise, it kind of breaks that concentration for a moment. Mm-hmm. So, so Pomodoro technique actually works really well for me. Um, the amount of time that you spend in that focus mode is different for everybody. I do like 20 to 25 minutes. Everybody in the room familiar with Pomodoro technique? If you're not, hum. Do okay. You give a quick. Yeah. Uh, I love this, this humming technique thing. I, I learned that great. at Papers We Love this last year. It was it was pretty awesome. I uh, can't remember who gave that talk, but shout outs to Papers We Love. Yes, it's it's a really fun conference, and if there's a local Papers We Love group, you should try it out sometime. It's great. You don't have to read the white paper. You just get to enjoy somebody else distilling it to you. Um, now I forgot where we were talking. Technique. Pomodoro, Pomodoro technique. Pomodoro technique. Thanks. Uh, so Pomodoro is. Uh, you, you set a timer for 20, 25 minutes, whatever. 
you focus on your work during that time. I usually keep a little notepad. If anybody tries to interrupt me, I just like point at the notepad and I have a note on it that says, write your name down. I'll get back to you when this timer's done. And I put the timer right up above it. Um, and as long as you get back to people, they really will start to respect that and leave you alone. Uh, after a while, they just start writing their name on the notebook and walking away. So after the timer goes off, it's like 20, 25 minutes, then you take a five- Wait, you work at home. People drive to your house to write their names down on the piece of paper? No, my, my kids. His kids. Or wow. like if I'm, if I'm out. Sometimes I actually work with other people too. So like right there. And, In your and, house? No. Well, yeah, no. But I go to them. Okay. I see. And I'll do the same thing. Okay. Um, it's really easy if you're in Slack because you just ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> and then 25 minutes later, you go read, you know, the 12 pages worth of Slack that 90% of it is... Like, what are you guys going to have for lunch since you're in the office? Turkey sandwich? Yeah, turkey sandwich. For eggs. <laughs> that was for breakfast. Good point. <laughs> um, so you take a five-minute break, and, and then you go back and do it again. During that five-minute break, you might check your email, uh, or you may write some stuff down for later to do and say, I'm going to check my email later because I have 900 little, little unread little red little circle on my phone is what notifications I think, I think yeah. is what they're called yeah i have like 900 of those so i'll just I'll, I'll do a whole pomodoro on that after you do like three or four of them then you take a long break 15 minutes half hour whatever i don't do them all day every day uh i just do them in in spurts especially if i'm having a hard time concentrating uh so that works really well for me and breaking things down into tiny pieces and then do one at a time that that also helps me get up and walk away because i'll do one and then get up and leave yeah. So that, that last part's interesting, uh, the, the breaking things down into small pieces, because I find that there's a point, um, how do I, what's the right way to say this? I feel like for me, when I start to do that, it often uh, devolves into pattern matching against problems that I've solved previously. Um, and like, this is a common, it's a common way to think about the problem, right? You just keep breaking the problem down until it's a smaller and smaller thing. And there is, there's value in that. I think, uh, I'm not trying to say like, you shouldn't do that. But I do think that there's, um, for me personally, I've often struggled with, again, slipping back into almost tactics. Like this is the problem I had when I was doing TDD, which I've kind of, for me personally, given up on. Is that, because uh, I don't think it works for me. But one of the problems I would have with it is, like it feels viscerally good to solve like one small thing before I move on to the next thing. And then I, I think this like, there's the, the, the platonic ideal, like the goal of like TDD, let's say, is that you do this like nice design thing by writing the tests and using your APIs and then you, you know, implement it and make it pass and you move on or whatever. And then you've got good design, right? Um, but I, I've found that like those little small wins feel really good. They feel like solving a puzzle. And I think as programmers, like, we often really like solving puzzles. It's like why, why, why people like type systems. It's like, it's a puzzle that you can just barely work your way out of. <laughs> and then your code probably works uh, when you get to the end. So I think that there's like, for me, I've always had, uh, I, I, I've started to notice that in myself. Like I, I latch onto those like visceral parts of it where it's like, I solved it, I wrote code. And I try to step back and like, figure out when I've gone too down, like too far down into like the small problem thing. Does that Doesn't sense? that depend on where you are in the cycle of trying 100%. to solve your problem, right? Because yeah. I feel like to Amos's point, like that and to what, you know, kind of Stu has been talking about, like thinking about it and what you were talking about, right? Stu was just talking about it a little bit more eloquently. I'm just kidding. But... Um, uh, <laughs> he did better than I did. 
they were both lovely. Um, but to what people have been talking about, right? Like there's a point in time where you are trying to actually just need to step away and allow your brain to think about the problem, right? Mm. And then once you have kind of thought about how you want to approach the problem, right? Again, depending on where you are in that problem solving phase, right? Eventually you get to a point where you're like, wait, but there are multiple things I have to do, right? And figuring right. out which things to do when, mm-hmm. that, breaking that down, I feel like can be useful, right? right? And then you're getting to that point in your thinking where it actually, you're switching the kind of thinking that you're doing and then it becomes more tactical, right? right? right so right. like, I agree with you catching yourself depending on where you are in that problem solving phase, right? If you're going into that too early, which is kind of, I think, what Stu is getting at, right? Then it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is a useful tool once you've done some of that larger picture thinking. Right. Well, and there's sort of levels to it as well. One of the examples we were talking about earlier and uh, when I was having this conversation is we were talking about lexing, the idea of like lexing. And uh, wait, I want to try this. Uh, if you know what lexing is, can you hum? Oh, cool. Wait, if I you, done the if other you way. don't I know what lexing up. is, can you hum? There, see. Okay, okay so, so lexing, lexing is the idea, it, uh, a lexer is a program that can, um, the, it's often used in parsing uh, as, as like a pre-step to parsers. And what it does is it breaks, um, in a very, very general sense, it breaks uh, the different parts of, let's say, source code into different tokens, into little bits, so that the parser can then decide what to do with them. Um, And when you're first learning about that, if you've never learned about a a lexer, you learn about them and you learn the fundamentals of them, and you kind of like realize, oh, these are really cool, these are useful. And then like the second level is you learn how to use like an off-the-shelf lexer, right? Like one of these like... You know, like if you're using Erlang or Elixir, there's leaks, uh, like, and like there's Lex, like Lex is a Lexer. And then there's like the step that you graduate to above that, which is you realize you don't need the off the shelf thing at all because the thing that you actually need to do is straightforward enough that you could do it in like a single line regex or something like that. You know what I mean? It's like there's these sort of levels that you graduate through as well. And all of that has to do with what you can, like, this term, like, I think it's called, like, your adjacent possible. Like, the things that are next to you that, like, you've heard of that, you're, that you can reach back out to and, like, pull from. It's like, if you don't even know that Lexing's a thing, you're not going to be able to, like, you know, think about how to solve that problem that way. Right? Uh, one of these answers we talked about earlier is, like, um, you know, you could build a Sudoku solver and you could, like, build the whole thing from, from whole cloth, but if you know that actually solving a Sudoku problem is like a constraint problem and you understand what constraint problems are, then it's probably like 10 lines of prologue because you just say what you want to do and it's done. And then, and then I learned that you just ask prologue to do it for you. Yes. Yeah, it's real easy. I learned prologue the other day. <laughs> yesterday? Is that when yeah, you learned yesterday. prologue? Yesterday. It's pretty fantastic. Wait, so where are you going with this, Keith? I'm just, I, I think, I think, well, I just, my intuition is that those things are somewhat linked. And the idea that taking the time to step back and look at the problem, like, I see. like yeah, I see also allows you this time to realize that the Sudoku solver is a, is a constraint solver, mm-hmm. right? Like, you just need to, you know, you just need the 10 lines of prologue. Or if you don't have a prologue, you can invent a prologue. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you could, like, that's a class of things that you can understand. But, like, it takes the second to step back and then, like, look at your problem and be like, oh, that's actually in the shape of this, which is this other thing that I am aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel I worry that, like, if you were to immediately take the Sudoku problem and then break it into small chunks and it's like, well, what's the first thing I need? I need a board. Like, you'd actually just, like, miss that whole first step. 
Well, it depends on where you are in your journey and like how much knowledge you have, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're if you're newer to whatever problem that you're solving, right? I would imagine. I'm curious. People think about this. I would think that like you also have. Um, not that you shouldn't step back and think about it, but your maybe pool of resources and how to solve the problem is maybe not as deep, right? So you're like, maybe it makes sense for me to try and even, I have no idea, right? I don't necessarily have this depth of research to think about, oh, wait, like adjacent possible might not fully exist in this context, mm-hmm. right? And so I wonder, I'm just, this is a question, right? Like, I wonder if there is a point where like, when you're first getting started, like, pieces of the tactical are helpful because they help ground you in where you might get started, right? So again, I think it depends on where you are, right? Right. Well, and this gets back to the thing that I'm fairly interested in, which is like, I mean, partially selfishly, how do you cultivate this? Like, how do you mm-hmm. figure out totally. the things that you don't know? Like, because I want to do that. I want to continue to do that as I grow yep. as a, in, in this, because I, you know, enjoy this, this discipline and I want to learn more yep. about it. Uh, and then also like, how do you provide this as like a mentorship thing like you know what I mean like mm-hmm. how do you give back um these these sorts of ideas and help train this and like are there patterns for that and there may not be and you know it's like standard programmer stuff is like reach for like a way to systematize a thing before really understanding what the problem is yes. uh so I don't know I mean maybe that's premature but I'm, I'm interested in hearing other people's thoughts on that so so I I think it's hard to distill like there's so much to know in this career field and it changes all the time that distilling down what you need to teach somebody is is really difficult. So I find play to be really important. And even if you've been doing this a long time, find a problem and take the way the first way that you think you should solve it and just throw that out. Don't even do it. Do it completely differently. And you might throw that out and go back to the original. But in order to make sure, what is it called? I'm probably going to butcher this. Eilstung effect? Which is where you reach for... Yeah, you for, definitely butchered that. Yeah, I don't know how to spell it. I don't even I, know what you... It starts with an E, and it ends in a stung. <laughs> um, it's, it's where you, you reach for ways to do things that feel familiar, even if they're not necessarily correct, just because out of habit. And, and actually, it happens well, with men more than that's women. That's actually a thing, right? Yeah. It's called the fluency heuristic, right? Like, the more... And this is totally different topics, so we're not going to get into it right now because it's off topic, but the more that you... The, more, the easier it is if you understand something, the more weight you give to that thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, the more validity that thing has. It's actually like a psychological concept. That's right. If you're, like, with people in a group and most of the people in the group share a certain opinion, right, and it's easy for you to understand that opinion, that opinion will carry more weight than somebody in the group who maybe has a different opinion that you don't fully understand as much, even though that opinion might be as valid. Or more valid. Or more valid. Yeah. So, so that's why I think that play is really important is – same kind of reason, like even though that's a, a psychological group problem, you have that same thing in just your own mind and what's going on. So it just it forces you to take new looks at different things. That's also why in my talk I mentioned metaphors and picking up a random word and then trying to make that into a metaphor of what you're working on is because it gives you a completely different way of looking at it. Now, if you just try to pull the metaphor out of your head instead of grabbing that random word, then you get less creativity and, and less learning, I think, going on. I think that's interesting. I do, I am curious to Chris's point, like, how do you kind of help cultivate that, like, way and feeling comfortable with that way of thinking? Because I think it's kind of what you're getting at, right? And mm-hmm. how do you help other people who are at different stages of their career? I'm curious. I don't have an answer to that, like, right? And to, like, the, the, to Osa's talk, right? Like, how do you, especially when someone's, like, I was talking to, this, to somebody about this the other, like, last night, like, 
I do a lot of work with Elixir Bridge. We're helping folks that are represented like learn Elixir. But if somebody's coming into the industry and they're trying to look for their first job, I may not say, if they really need a job, like I may not say, go learn Elixir, right? Because they need to get a job. But some of the patterns, to his point, are important and some of the thinking, right? Even mm -hmm. that paradigm of thinking and how do you help kind of people learn that rather than a specific technology, right? right? Yeah. Well, I think for me, the, the only, um, uh, my superpower is uh, I've been able to cultivate uh, uh, and find people who are infinitely smarter than I am mm -hmm. and just hang around them long enough to do this, what is now coming on a 10-year, you could call it a career, but it's more like all the time performance art where like <laughs> I'm sort of pretending at all stages that I know anything about what I'm doing. Uh, and, and I think, but like, and that's the secret, right? Is like, you don't, if you, you can massively multiply your, your career development by just finding people who, like finding a community to be with who are gonna like teach you stuff through osmosis, right? Who are gonna say words and they're gonna be like, well, you know, Raft is like Paxos. And you're like, what is a Paxos? never heard of Paxos. And then you go read these papers and you're like, I still don't know what Paxos is. <laughs> I read the paper and he talked about it a lot, but I don't get it. And then they're like, yeah, no one does. Um, so, so it's totally just fine. read Heidi's 100-page yeah. paper. Oh, I know. Yeah. I've started. It's, I'm, in, I'm in there. Anyway, uh, I, but I think that, like, like, that's, you know, I mean, like, I'm fortunate in that uh, here in Chattanooga, like, I have an amazing community of people mm -hmm. who do know infinitely more than I do. Uh, and I just hang around them and try to... Uh, much like a child uh, who's in a wedding, like I'm just standing there mimicking the other people, pretending like just awkwardly being like, that's right, I'll just do that. Like you just mm -hmm. parrot it, right? You just, you, without really understanding why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it does, you just, you learn it. So some of those people are here. I know. So why. I think we should just call them out, friends of the show. Friends of the, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. friends of Go the ahead. show. So, so Lang, Neil, those are people I know. Can, how many, your, can you, your, can, that's can, it, can you, that's all I know. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know you respected that many people. <laughs> <laughs> Knowles over there. Where is it? Where Knowles? Oh yeah, Knowles here. Uh, like, there's a bunch of there's there's, a, there's so many people that we're not gonna be able to name them all. So, yeah. oh, just yeah. thank you for everybody who taught Chris things so he can teach them to me. I really appreciate that. So related to that, uh, be the be the dumbest person in the room. That is the best place to be. It's super fantastic. It's frustrating um, to be. That to feel that way at first until you learn to embrace it. The, the only reason that anybody has a career that you would look up to is because they failed more than you have. Like that is super important. Just it's okay to fail. You learn from failure. So, yeah, so go put yourself today. out there and fail and fail well, fail forward. That's what I hear. I don't even know what that means, but just do it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yes, totally. Um, I'm curious, I don't know if we're ready for this, but I'm curious, we've been talking about like our perspective on this, but this has kind of been a thread throughout the conference. Um, if folks have any questions or thoughts on this particular topic that they would like to share, we have a chair and a microphone. If anybody's brave enough to come up and share kind of their thoughts on how like you might cultivate this type of thinking or share like how you might help other people learn how to learn, I guess, is what we're talking about, right? Anybody brave enough to... Um, we're just going to keep talking. So this is just going to keep happening, and this is a 15-minute slot, so we're just going to keep going. But if anybody... Or we'll be silent. Yeah, or we can just sit here and wait. Anna! Yes! Hey, Anna. 
Well, two Annas on the show. Oh, no. Yeah. It's 100% more Anna. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, no, this is a topic that's been very much at the forefront of my life. I tend to love helping people learn how to code, and I'm actually helping my husband right now. And just some things that I've noticed along the way, like kind of progressing my career, things that I wish I knew that seemed to have helped him was like having him understand you don't have to know all the little things and not getting so consumed in syntax and things like that, but taking a step back and understanding there's concepts of things that I need to understand and really focusing on that rather than I can't remember how to do a reduce in the specific language. Like, no, but you need to understand like, there is something called reduce, and you can do it in pretty much any any language, stuff like that. So I found, like, and it's a hard thing to know to do when you're getting into programming, that it feels good to know those little things, to know, like, oh, I know how to do this very specific thing. But being able to understand, and it took a big weight off of him, is what he told me, like, not having to keep all of that in his head but knowing, okay, there's something that does something like this, and I know I can go find it when I'm in this situation. So that's been something that I've noticed. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that goes a little bit back to, like, um, what Stu, one of the things that Stu was talking about today, right? Like, understanding and knowing the details when you need to, right? And knowing that you can go find them and then take the time to really understand them when you need to, right? That um, you don't need to keep all of the things in your head at any given point in time. Right. Um, it's probably a useful thing to remember. Right. Uh, yeah, I really resonated with that because I think if you've programmed with me recently, you'll know that like I will look up stuff a lot because it's like I don't need to keep that in my head. I keep that somewhere else on the internet. I know it exists. I don't need to know that fully like that. Or I keep it in other people. <laughs> so I, I joke that Craig is one of my databases that I'll be like, you know how to do that. Just remind me how this works again. Okay, yeah. And then I pull it out when I need it. And that's super powerful because it frees up more space in your brain to solve the problem you're solving without getting like bogged down into the details. Yeah. I have to look up the Phoenix and Ecto docs a embarrassed in em literally every time. I have I a bookmark for that. Yeah. Like I, I have like Ecto migration. That's a different problem, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, yeah, like, yeah, I don't keep that stuff in memory. Yeah. For sure. I'm, I'm curious a little bit also about another thread that kind of Dave touched on. I think Stu touched on, and I don't know if you touched on, I don't remember, but um, this concept of like being okay with, failing and how you kind of build an intuition. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts because you seem to talk about it a lot. Feel free not to, not to answer if you don't want to, but... You, Brian. Brian, yeah. sorry. I Brian. was looking at Brian. Do you want to steal my microphone, Brian? Yeah, I'm curious what thoughts you might have because you seem to deal with this quite a bit. Hello. Yeah, so I think failure is the normal state of things. Um, I think we sort of delude mm -hmm. ourselves into believing that success is what the end result of what we do is. So... Mm -hmm. Most things are in, in some level of failure at any given time. And really, this work is about how we manage failure um, and how we manage to intercept things before they turn into disasters. And that's great. I think there's, there's a sort of optimism in that that maybe doesn't come across when I talk about things blowing up and mangling people. It, mostly just because if, if there is such a thing as perfection, then we're always missing it like in our, in our work. We're always not achieving perfection. But if you can achieve a thing that is flawed but functional, mm -hmm. then you're actually able to do that. Well, I, think, I think what you said is totally accurate, which is that sort of everything is running 
in failure mode all the time. Yeah, at running a large into the ground. Scale, right? Yeah. You know, and it's like through a bunch of mitigation and human effort and operational people and all this kind of stuff that it keeps it running. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's that's totally that's totally accurate. Yeah, I think that's that's a very salient point. Um, I think too. This is important for people coming into the community too. Like failure is a thing that you have to understand is normal and getting comfortable with that to move forward. Because I think it was really interesting to hear that one of the things that you enjoyed having was a peer, um, Grace and Sarah, like having someone there to like kind of fail alongside you. So, you know, like, oh, okay, this is normal. Um, and it's important to like, as we bring in new people into the community to let them know it's okay to fail. It's okay not to get it right the first mm-hmm. time or the second time or the 800th time. But eventually you'll understand and you'll be better for it because you've learned something along the way. Mm-hmm. So like failing isn't like failing. It's, it's just learning. Well, yeah. and I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I came up through mathematics and I've worked with a lot of people that have come up through mathematics. And in mathematics, things can be perfect because they're not real. And what I've noticed is that <laughs> well, they're not. <laughs> much like, much like Haskell, the numbers only run in your imagination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, what I've noticed is that um, in that style of perfection is what we're aiming for. You never talk about where things have gone wrong, and that could be because you are performing perfectly, or it could be because you're very good at hiding. Uh, and I think that's, that's actively harmful because that's how you get into the sort of thing that I specialize in, which is systematic accidents. Because um, the more you hide deviations, the more everyone's mental model is different from what actually exists. Um, and then things blow up. And so how do you kind of keep everybody on the, on the same page, right? Like keep yeah. that model from deviating? Because it seems like, and so I think behind this interesting about what you're saying, is like if you accept that, most things, if you switch your thinking to accept that most things actually will fail as opposed to being afraid of something failing, then even that small shift seems to like change how you think about approaching yeah. the problem. So I, I think my approach there is I very much believe in the notion of like servant leadership. So when I screw up, I advertise it really hard. Like I screwed up in this way, here's how it happened, here's how like the process allowed this to happen. And I, I think that works really well because at this point in my career, I'm usually sort of high up in organizations and I'm implicitly saying, look, me who's up here can admit that I failed and we as a group can talk about how that failure happened because it's a group failure in some sense. And so then it becomes okay to be like, yeah, I accidentally nuked a database over here <laughs> and I found out that our backups still work. <laughs> so Always that's good. a win. Yeah, totally. And so... And you mentioned, and when you were speaking, like you've been mentoring more folks lately. Mm-hmm. Any, and I think you've mentioned this, like through modeling behavior, but are there any other techniques that you do use to like kind of get them comfortable with this concept of like failure is just going to happen? Yeah. So one thing we've started to do uh, at the firm that I work for is actually do a root cause process. And we sort of intentionally as a group sit down, go through the process, and there's no one person that's at fault at the end of it. It's everybody's fault because there was a process that allowed this thing to fail. So whenever, one, and whenever anyone says it was human failure that caused a thing to, to happen, that is a failure of the actual process for figuring out what went wrong because human failure just means that it is possible for a machine to drive itself into a state that it shouldn't be in and a human being happened to be around when it happened. So we go through root cause and we, as a group, try and figure out how we are to blame. And one person gets to drive at a time, so you get to run through the whole process of how that works. And then we critique how the root cause 
process works. So we continually and to improve. like iterate to improve. Yeah, yeah that is really interesting. Huh. Yeah. So if you look at code you wrote a year ago, and you say it's great, you're you're failing to move forward. Yeah. So well. so that's really the key, like the failure. I want to. Has anyone literally ever done that? <laughs> uh, I mean, the code I wrote a year ago is fantastic. Wow. <laughs> Have you guys seen that? Like, it was going on a while ago on Twitter, maybe not, like that parrot meme. I wish I could bring it up. There's like this tiny little, like, wind up parrot, and someone's like, you're looking at, like, it's looking at a piece of code, and it's like, who wrote this? This is crap. And they do get blamed. And they're like, oh, it's my baby. And then they go over and, like, rock the little baby parrot. Because, <laughs> anyway, unrelated. I have not seen the meme. I'll have to share it. It's really funny. Maybe I quit Twitter. Later. Did you? Yeah. No, mostly. you didn't. I can quit whenever I want. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like um, you have a problem or anything. Well, it's also like Iocane powder. I'm slowly building up a tolerance to it <laughs> by ingesting it all the time. <laughs> what? Oh, you look Nothing. like you're going to say something. Nothing. You started to talk. No, it's just... <sighs> So, Brian, you were talking about root cause analysis and, and human error. Have you read the book Behind Human Error? Yeah. Yes, that's in my collection. Okay. okay, it's a good book. Systematic failure books. I don't, I don't have a whole lot more to say about yeah. that. I was just curious. <laughs> I also, everybody Brian, have you read the Harry really Potter good. series? <laughs> no, I actually have. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that's a good one. Um, I also highly recommend Charles Perrault's Normal Accidents, which is where I get the idea of system accidents from. Uh, the Challenger Launch Decision. The Truth Behind Chernobyl, Voices from Chernobyl, Beyond Human Failure, and one other whose name I'm blanking on at the moment. I surely have written about these at some point. So if you go to like blog.troutwine.us, it'll, it'll all be there. Awesome. I don't even have to write them down. I'm just going to listen to this later and then <laughs> order all of them <laughs> from in, Amazon. Put them in the show notes. Put them in the show notes. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's his job. All right. <laughs> Um, does anybody else have thoughts on any of the things that we're talking about that they want to share or their perspective? Um, yeah, come on up. Hello. All of us. Oh, I get a chair. That's nice. Okay, <laughs> okay so uh, on the topic of failure, when coming into the community, oh, I'm Sophia, by the way. I was around eight or nine years old whenever my uh, dad, Brian, over not not the guy who was just on, the uh, Brian Hunter, uh, took me to an Erlang conference, and that was my uh, first experience with that, and that's how I sort of got into, like, oh, yeah, I'm a programmer. Um, so, and I went to the conference. I was, like, really short, and I was like, yeah, I get to type in a room full of people who are, like, three feet taller than me. And, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so I started typing. We started going through the sli slides and everything, and I was typing. And then I was little, so I had, like, a little human brain. And so this guy, he's uh, showing the slides and everything, and suddenly he moves on, and I'm not done, and I start freaking out. I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then he, start, he keeps moving on, and I just run out of the room and start crying because <laughs> I'm, I'm a little child who doesn't know what's going on. And I feel like with that, uh, and then I, my mom picked me up, and I left. Uh, <laughs> and so, and then I look back on that now, and I'm like, wow, that would have been nice if somebody told me that half of the other tall dudes in the room were also behind. That would, that would have been nice to know. But with that, it's like, it helps. Uh, we were talking the other day about how uh, majorities can, sorry, majorities can help um, 
the minorities, uh, like, you know, lift them up. And I feel like with this is kind of like the people who are in the community can help the people who are new to it. Like, know that, what, like, we were talking about failure is okay and it happens with everyone, especially since, like, I've been in that position before where I've been new. So I just want to embarrass myself on talk show. So, yeah, that, that, was, <laughs> yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Chris, I don't think we need you anymore. We found your replacement. What? We found your replacement. I don't think we need you anymore. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I'm, that is totally fine with me. We'll reach out to your people, Brian. We'll get a schedule going. <laughs> we'll start a transition plan. <laughs> I mean, my, my mom had to pick me up crying two weeks ago, so. <laughs> you, don't, you don't ever outgrow it, really. Um, yeah, you're crying, uh, buddies. Woo, you. yeah, yeah. Um, Jeff, by the way, again. Um, I'm sort of piggybacking off the idea of a failure, right? I've been thinking, it's come up a couple times this week and people have been talking about th how to think and how to learn. And, um, you know, so I didn't, I didn't start out in, in technology. I, I worked my way into it. I learned on, you know, on the job. I taught myself a lot of stuff. And so the idea that, uh, and I think, Grace, you mentioned it, being comfortable with not being the most experienced person in the room and being able to interface with people who are at a much higher level with than you in terms of their experience level, the knowledge that they have in the, in the domain that you're working in. And so, and if, is anybody familiar with the, uh, with the, the series Dune, Frank Herbert? Ooh, yeah, Ooh, so yeah. if you're, if you're familiar with the, uh, yeah, so it's this, you know, sort of space opera um, about this pseudo um, religious figure who knows how to uh, manipulate his his mind and body uh, to become this pseudo-religious emperor of a space empire. It's a very good series. Um, but there's a quote somewhere in the book about um, the, this central figure, Paul's... He, he, he learned very quickly because um, his earliest training was in how to learn. And that the first truth that he learned was that he could learn. And that it's shocking how many people do not believe that they can learn and how many more people believe that it's difficult. And so, you know, coming into a very, very different space than, you know, my, my formal education, which was in English, it was very intimidating to think that I was trying to do something that I was totally unequipped for in school. I was terrible at math. It was just, I'm a left brain, right brain person. It's a much more, you know, artistic, metaphoric, things like that. And, and sort of where I started to feel like I was succeeding was when I stopped obsessing about the idea that this was going to be difficult, I wasn't going to succeed, that I could overcome that. And that's been very powerful for me, so. Anybody else? Oh, we have a hand up. Oh, wait, no, here. No, no, we gotta get you recorded. <laughs> so you say you got to, nah, I mean, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I don't have much other than a question about. Oh, you might want to stay, Jeff. I think he has a question for you. Yeah, that's all it was. I was just going to ask you, like, you said you got over this idea that, like, something would have been too hard for you to learn. For people who believe that about themselves now, how did you get over it? And, like, if nothing else, no, no other way than just, like, I was gusto enough to do it, right? Um, that's one way to put it. Um, so someone who has been a mentor for me who, like, the way he put it to me, which was very powerful, was do something that is painful until it's not painful anymore. And so that's been my, you know, one of my personal mottos ever since is if I find that I am uncomfortable doing it, it's probably worth trying again. 
If, if you're willing to take advice from a 13-year-old, too. Um, <laughs> um, you might be the smartest person on that panel. And you so should I'm just be. Saying. <laughs> um, uh, if you're, I've been with that before where, um, like, kind of relating it to another topic. I'm a big soccer person, football for people who are educated. Um, <laughs> See, you are the smartest person on this panel, and you? Um, uh, be a... Uh, I've been, I've like, this is amazing. No, this is awesome. This is awesome. No, keep going. Okay. Um, in the, we just finished our soccer season and, uh, in the spring we do basketball. Um, and so I've been thinking about doing basketball and I've like never played it before. Never like. No, I still play soccer, but basketball is another option. And I'm just nervous because uh, embarrassment is something that prevents failure because you're scared of failing. But um, I guess the thing is, if you don't do it, you never get the chance to fail. And you never know that, yeah, I don't want to do this ever again. Or you find something that you want to do. So I guess a big thing is just thinking about the long term. What's going to happen if you choose not to go get over that? And then just make your decision from that. So, yeah. I think... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You can go ahead. Okay, I will. Um, Wait. No. I think for me... Um, well, I think a couple of things. I think one, you know, we... You never learn uh, very well when you're under pressure. Uh, and we put an inordinate amount of pressure on ourselves to know things in this industry. And probably unfairly and unjustly. And I think that comes from the fact that a lot of what we do is considered this like knowledge work thing. Like it's got knowledge in the name. Like, like that's not fair. Like, and somehow that's like a judgment about you if you don't know enough stuff or you don't whatever. And so I, I don't know that I, I have good advice or anything, but just to say that like, you probably can do it. And there may be a bunch of other external factors that are weighing on you probably a little bit unfairly uh, and don't hold you know, this goes for everybody like don't hold yourself to the standard of someone else like hold yourself to the standard of you and like let that be let that stand um and uh and and like do the things you can do today and learn a little bit and and that and just you know enjoy the process because i think this career can be really rewarding uh if you if you push through that that initial those, some of those initial hurdles yeah, I want to uh, follow up on what Keith Lee was saying. Um, we do a lot of, I've done a lot of work with uh, Elixir Bridge and before that Rails Bridge and helping folks coming into the industry that are new. Um, and I've heard this from them after teaching these workshops. Finding and reminding yourself of like, A, all of the things that you have already learned, right? You learn a couple things, they seem easy, but you've already learned those things, right? And they were hard at some point. And actually, if something is really difficult at that moment, right? It's okay to step back and maybe work on something else you're more comfortable with, right? And there is, I forget the, the, the term behind it, but there is actually a psychological concept there to help like build that confidence back, to go back and then be more ready to do the thing that was difficult, but also remembering like the, and to, the remembering the, the smaller wins, right? Like piece by piece that you actually are growing. It might not be happening as quickly, but when you get really frustrated being like, but wait, like maybe I'm coming back to this problem for the second or third time, but actually I understand it better than I did the first time, right? So there is progress, and it's just recognizing where that progress is happening, if folks have said has been helpful. I would say, I was 
going to say, like, I, the, the other thing is, uh, I, I personally have started to feel like um, the idea of talent is largely a myth. And it's just people have very different learning styles. And some people learn a particular way easier than other people do. Um, and I you know, used to work in education. And I think one of the things that um, the education system, particularly like when I was in school um, coming up, that has been failing most people for a long time is that they, they have been treating the, 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 the process of teaching like there is one way to do it. And that doesn't work for everybody. And that... Um, so, and, and Amos, you, your talk on, so you, you mentioned something that, that at least I took it to mean learn how you think and learn how you process because your process is going to be different than my process and other people's processes. And if you can give yourself that kind of introspective training, then you're going to be better equipped to handle a situation that you know, would have seemed really difficult or even insurmountable before, but once you figure out how your brain needs to approach it, it's just as much as somebody else's who would have come about it natural, naturally, right? Air quotes. So, hey, I'm Nathan. I, I kind of want to just like bring up an, something related to, I wonder, I'm wondering if there's things that you can be deliberate about learning. So, for an example, I learned to play guitar when I was like 14 or something. And I remember one of the things that was really hard was like, I've got these two hands, and this hand has to be doing something, and this hand has to be doing something. And like, I can't get them both going at the same time. And then when I finally get to the point where I'm strumming and I try to sing something, like my hands forget what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to work up to the point where the hands are moving almost automatically. That's all become subconscious so that I can now focus on something higher level. Like, oh, now what, what chord am I going to do next? And then higher level of that, like, how should I sing this note or whatever? Like, certain things have to become automatic, mm -hmm. right? And when I'm programming, like Vim is something I've been using for a long time. I don't think about how do I get to the next line, how do I delete this, whatever. I'm thinking about the code. And kind of related to that, like, I feel like learning involves plugging things into structures that you understand. So my brother's a historian, and if he hears something about World War II or whatever, like, he's immediately, he's got all this structure of, like, these people and these places, and he's plugging, like, things in. And for me, it's just this unconnected fact. And for him, it's like, con it's, he's got so much context for it. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's things that you have to memorize, things that you have to make automatic. And what are those key pieces? How do you recognize those pieces? And then how do you force them into your mind and get them to become automatic to the point where there are some things you're like, yeah, I'll just look that up when I need it. But there's some things that's like, I need to know that lexing is a thing. I need to know that, whatever. Like, how do you recognize those and make them automatic? Sorry, that was a long question. That's okay. I think if it was created in like the 70s, you should know what it is. Uh, <laughs> For, for computer science, specifically. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think that's a totally accurate question, or a great question. And then that's, I think that, that becomes really hard. I don't know that I have, I don't know, I personally have good answers. I have found that there's some really good resources for people who do try to take, you know, this sort of, like, uh, foundational computer science-y type knowledge and break it down in ways that explain it. I think... Um, uh, one one resources out there is basically everything like Gary Bernhardt's ever worked on, and all of his stuff is really good. Yeah, like he has a great series on computation and on uh, on all these kinds of foundational things. Reading old books, you typically get them like very cheap off you some sort of used something, you know, wherever you buy your used books. 
and uh, and like those are great to read through. Old old papers tend to be pretty approachable, you know. I don't, but I don't know. And and then and then that's to me, it's like the shortcut and the superpower for that has been always to like surround myself with a bunch of people who probably know a little bit more than me, and then and just try to like uh, learn all the words. So when I hear a problem, I'm like, I think I know what that is, and I can maybe go look at that. That sounds like, you know, a parsing problem. I think all problems sound like parsing problems, but, you know, uh, like it, it, or a graph problem, you know, or whatever. And then you can kind of ask people um, yeah. and ask your friends and say, like, does this sound like this? And what have you heard about this before? And that kind of stuff. Totally. Um, can we get a round of applause for all of our guests? I think we're at time. Thank yeah. you. Thank to you, everybody. everybody, for joining us. I feel yeah. like we have a You're whole new friend of the shows. Extent. Yeah, you Yay. just you just stay up here. You're with us now. Yeah, you're you're part of the team. Elixir Outlaws. I'm with go. the band. I'm with the band. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for a fantastic conference, Bruce, Maggie. Um, yeah. I mean, I know that your soccer team's not as good as Kansas City's football but team. It's close. Fo- football. Yeah, football. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate that. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks, y'all. Thank you, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.